Trigger warning, this episode mentions themes around suicide and mental health. Heather Hutchinson is an author and musician who has been blind since birth and struggled with mental illness. She is passionate about educating people on her disability. This episode, she speaks on the experience of growing up with this disability, as well as dispelling the myths of being visually impaired. Um, it's kind of, everyone thinks blindness is, you know, kind of all or nothing. Yeah. And I have a little bit of vision. It's classified as light perception only. Right. But that changes based on the day, the lighting, how tired I am. Oh, um, wow. I can see kind of really stark contrasts, like things between black and white and things like that. If the lighting is lower, if the light in bright light, I'm effectively completely blind. Right. So you would know like if there's a light on in a room type thing sometimes. Yes. Yes. Wow. So growing up blind, what was that like? It was super normal up until a certain point. So I was about probably five before I really realized that other people saw me as different because before then, you know, you're kind of just with your family, you know, hung out with my brother and cousins. Nobody ever really told me I couldn't do anything. And then I was five when that kind of changed. I was on summer vacation with my family and we were playing, I was playing at the playground with the one other kid who was a couple of years older than me. And he asked me why I never looked at anything. And I was like, I'm blind, like super matter of fact, you know, as yeah. if saying I have brown hair and blue eyes or whatever. And his reaction was so negative. He turned around. I was at the top of the slide. He turned around and he pushed me backwards and he yelled blind bozo. And he oh, went oh, flew down the slide and, and ran off. And that was kind of like the first time I remember laying there and just being like, oh, you know, a lot of things kind of clicked into place. And I was like, oh, I am, you know, people see me as different. And that's kind of going to be how it is forever. So growing up, it was one of those things where, like you said, until you were about five, no, you know, you didn't know at all. Yeah. So, so hitting like high school and, and regular school, what kind of specialist things did you have? Or did you kind of go straight with the, the kind of approach of independence with having a cane or a guide dog of some kind? Yeah, I've used a cane and a guide dog. I had a guide dog in university. So for elementary school and high school, I had a cane and I had um, an EA educational assistant who would um, transcribe my coursework and things like that into Braille. Mm. But there were often times, I think a lot of people don't realize um, how difficult the educational system can be for people with disabilities. There were a lot of times I didn't have textbooks or um, class notes or a calculator, things like that. So there were some challenges with being um, mainstreamed. Oh, wow. So I'm guessing, you know, every kind of day, if not, you know, every time you interact with new people, there's a kind of learning curve that people have to kind of adopt. How do you kind of, you know, deal with this day to day of, okay, so I'm going to go to the coffee shop, I'm going to order a coffee. How do you, how do you kind of broach day to day life? Yeah, it can be a challenge for sure. It really honestly depends a lot on the other person's perception. I just really try to, you know, come across as somebody who you can just have, you know, a pretty normal conversation with. And, you know, we we just want to be treated the same as you would treat anybody else. So, you know, just just meet people where they are kind of thing. Yeah, I feel that. So 
do, like one thing I've always wondered because you know on TV you always get these kind of weird depictions of blind people. Yes. But yeah. do you ever go up and like feel someone's face to kind never. of never never no. <laughs> No, that is not. I don't know any blind people that actually do that. It's this weird, I don't know, thing in the media that I don't know where it came from. But no, I have never in my life. People ask me that. Do you want to feel my face? And I'm like, ah, no, I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm just trying to dispel some of the myths because in my head, I, it's like it's, you always see on television or, you know, you hear about, oh, yeah, this person's blind. Oh, let me feel your face. Oh, wow. <laughs> Jerry, yeah. it's you, and you know I feel like surely a blind person will know by your voice that that's you. Yes, exactly. No, we don't. Yeah, we don't need to feel somebody's face to know who they are if we've met them before. So, are your are your other senses more enhanced? Because I'm once again, I'm sure a lot of people would want to ask this question, so I have to ask it. Do you have like enhanced hearing, enhanced smells, that type of thing? Yeah, that's kind of another one of those misconceptions. It's not really that they're enhanced or better than anybody else's. We just learn to use them more effectively. Okay. Because there is this one kind of massive story about this guy that uses this thing called echolocation, where he's like clicking mm -hmm. his tongue and, you know, he can yeah. see because he can hear it. And it's a bit like, it sounds something so sci-fi that it's not yeah, real. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, there are people who do that for sure. But that's just, again, that's just practice. Yeah. And I'm assuming you've never tried that before. No, it's not really my, I, I don't know. I guess it looks kind of odd to me going down the street, just making these random noises. So no, I don't, it's not really my thing. All right. So I, I haven't actually had a chance to read your book quite yet, but your book is a memoir. So it's yeah. about your life up until the point the book was written yes what made you start to write the book it was people always told me you know you should write a book about life as a blind person and I was always kind of like well you know like my life is so average I don't really have a lot to say and then I actually came at it from the mental health angle well it's it's kind of two parallel themes so my life growing up as a blind person in Canada and Latin America and then my struggles with mental health. So it was actually the, like, the mental health piece of it that, that kind of led me to that because I was hospitalized kind of back at the beginning of the pandemic in the spring of 2020. And I was lying in the hospital one night. I couldn't sleep and this person was brought in by air ambulance in critical condition. And as soon as they were brought in, um, they called a code blue. And I was lying there in my bed thinking about this person's family and like, my God, they must be having one of the scariest nights of their life. And I started thinking, how can I have so much compassion for this person's family while knowing the decision I want to make will devastate my own family. And I'm thinking about this person and like, you know, they're fighting to live and I'm fighting to die. And I realized I had this chance and I had this opportunity to try and do something good out of a really difficult situation and, you know, tell this story for so many people who who no longer can. So that's kind of how the book came about. So it was one of those ones where life was taking a kind of a, an unfortunate turn for you or a, or a dark road. And you decided, yeah. you know what? I now have to kind of take the situation and instead of letting it bring me down, I'm going to empower myself. So yeah, exactly. Most people that write books, now this is me, you know, speaking on a general term, most people that are writing books can see. So they're just, you know, typing away, happy, 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 editing away and et cetera, et cetera. 
what was the process like of writing a book as a blind person? I assume you have a braille keyboard and all this kind of stuff, but editing it, reading it back, all of that stuff. I use a normal keyboard. You can use a braille keyboard. I do have one, but I'm honestly at this point probably faster on like your just regular QWERTY keyboard. It was actually that part of it wasn't really challenging at all. The, it was pretty much like how anybody else would write a book. So I would... I would listen back to it with my screen reading software. And then after I got it pretty close to how I wanted it, I went through it a couple of times actually in Braille and just kind of, you know, did the final proofreading in hard copy Braille. And assuming that, you know, you as a as a reader would appreciate it when materials and things like that or books are, are provided to you in you know, Braille or in some kind of accessible format. Is your book available in Braille and audiobook and all that kind of stuff? It's available in an ebook, which can be turned into Braille by, you know, this um, Braille display I mentioned earlier. It, it just, it's Bluetooth. It hooks up to your computer and everything on the screen you can now see in Braille on this little little machine so you can read it that way in braille or it's also uh, we did an audiobook of it as well wow so that's one thing i've recently started to learn is about accessibility in yeah. uh, in all forms even with this podcast how do you consume like regular media do you kind of just watch television and hear it or do you use like audio description type stuff yeah, I watch TV pretty much the same as anybody um, on Netflix. Actually, all of Netflix shows have something called DVS, Descriptive Video Service. So while the dialogue is not going on in the show or the movie, there's actually somebody, there's a voiceover describing the images, what's going on on the screen. So things that we might miss when there's no dialogue. But we can also just follow along with the dialogue for most movies and most shows. Wow. Yeah, sorry. I, I know I'm kind of stuck up on the whole no, no understanding worries. blindness because it's that's kind of just where my head is at. I'm like, how how do I understand what blindness is so that when I come into like more kind of just general kind of questions and conversational points with you, I don't kind of not have an understanding of what that experience would be like. So Yeah, no, sure. It's you know, education I think is really important. Yeah, well, I think we've covered enough educational points now. I guess we can just get into you as a person. So what were you doing in Latin America? What was the reason for traveling there? So I kind of grew up surrounded by the Latin American community in Canada. And I'm going to make some really sweeping generalizations here. But um, people in Latin America have, they have this, I don't know, they, they're better at just accepting me for who I am. Like for a lot of Canadians, they kind of tend to have two responses when I meet them to blindness. They either get super uncomfortable and, and like kind of studiously avoid the topic or they try and make jokes about it, which is like, great, I like a good blind joke as one just the next person, but I've heard them all a million times, so it's not really that original. But people in Latin America, I don't know, like it just, they're so much less phased, I guess, by it. And, you know, it's not even something we really need to talk about because they just, they observe, I guess, a lot more than they ask. So I wanted to move to Latin America to actually just be like 
totally immersed in that and to be different for a different reason, you know, instead of I grew up as being the blind girl. So instead of the blind girl being, you know, the girl from Canada. Yeah. So where did you move to and, and you know, who did you move with or did you move on your own? I moved to Peru with my partner and we, we got jobs teaching English. Nice. And uh, that's something that I actually would be interested to know. How do you date as a blind person? I'm sure it's pretty normal, but is in, you know, th let's assume he knows what you look like. You don't know what he looks like. What, what are your kind of factors? Because for most people, looks is what they're going after, first of all, when they're looking to date somebody. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, honestly, probably the voice, um, the, the build of the person. Like, there's still a lot of physical characteristics that you can learn about a person from not seeing them you know they're kind of even how they walk right you can kind of tell their approximate stature you know their approximate weight things like that so we do get a lot of visual information we just get it a little bit differently yeah okay so you and your partner are out in peru and you're you're an english teacher what age group were you teaching Mostly adults. I did teach some kids, but it was a lot of people who wanted to improve their English for business. Okay. And uh, I'm, I'm, you know, obviously I'm kind of thinking to myself, okay, you're out in Latin America, things are going a lot better for you and all this kind of stuff. What was your kind of day-to-day -day routine out there? You would you'd wake up, you'd go to work, and then what what is there to do in Peru after work? It's very friend and family centered so you know we spend a lot of time in in parks hanging out with friends eating you just spend as much time it's it's really community is important like i think we kind of in canada we can get stuck in this thing of you know you go home after work you sit down and you watch netflix for four hours there's a lot less of that there i find people actually get out and want to do things with other people yeah. And so you were meeting people just kind of through work or just in the street. Like, how did you end up going to because you went to Peru, I'm assuming, knowing nobody but your partner and then have now, you know, got friends out there and, and you know, relationships. I had Peruvian friends in Canada, so they actually introduced me to people when we were going down there. They they got us in contact through Facebook and stuff like that. And then we hung out and became friends. Oh, wow. Okay, so that's that's kind of like a, a little kind of cheat code if you're moving abroad. Hopefully you already have friends where you're coming from that are from where you're going to and they can introduce you. Yeah, yeah, just find, try and find kind of like a little group, I guess, from that country. And if they you know, know anybody there, see if they know, you know, if you're looking for a job, it's amazing, you know, the networking that you can do. Okay. So how long ago was that when you were in Peru? Oh, gosh, eight years ago now, I think. Oh, okay. So quite a while ago. And yeah. now you're back in Canada, I'm assuming. Yes. But the whole time, so you, you said from a young age you struggled with mental health. What exactly was it? Was it kind of something else or was it stemming from the fact that you're blind? I think it was just a culmination of factors. I just you know was an anxious person I was 
pretty intuitive from a young age. So if people were uncomfortable around me, that made me uncomfortable, which increased my anxiety. So by seven or eight, I was having full-blown panic attacks. And then that was kind of followed by depression in my early teens. It started because, you know, you're panicking all the time. You, you don't want to live like that anymore. So that's when the depression kind of sets in. Ah, and dealing with that depression over the years, it kind of all came to a head at the beginning of the pandemic where, you know, I'm not saying, you know, anything kind of that would upset the listener here, but you, you tried to take your own life. Yes. Yeah, that was the plan. What was the kind of process of after that where you were in, when you were in hospital and all that kind of stuff? So I actually went willingly to the hospital initially. I wasn't trying to get better. I just wanted absolution. I wanted my family to know that I tried afterwards. So it was kind of like this last ditch effort, but I had no faith that it actually was going to work. So I just kind of went to go through the motions of going basically. But then I was actually sectioned, I think they call it in, in the UK, mm. um, which is basically admitted involuntarily. So I wasn't free to leave. And when you were under section, did you receive any type of therapy or were you just there? Like what was the kind of program they put you on? Yeah. So the first couple of days were just basically getting me stabilized enough, you know, 24 hour surveillance, just kind of seeing what I was all about. And there wasn't really a lot of and, and medication adjustments from the medications that I came in on. And after that, I was moved to a different ward. So that was called psychiatric emergency. And then I was moved to the IPU inpatient psychiatric unit. And there you get therapy with the psychiatrists and also with the psych nurses. So basically, it's just it's it's pretty regular therapy. It's just way more intensive. So you'll have, you know, eight or 10 mini therapy sessions every day instead of one long one. Yeah. So it's it's more it's like a it's like a fast track kind of thing, but it's not really fast track. It's just trying to get the most out of what they have to offer. Yeah, yeah. It's just really doubling down and working on the on the tools, on the coping mechanisms and things like that, and just constantly having that reinforcement of, you know, this is how you do it. So what are some of the tools that you learned in this process? So a big one was CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. So basically, you you try to look at the world in a different way. So you try to think to yourself in a given situation, is this actually based in reality? Is what I'm telling myself based in reality? Or is there kind of a more probable explanation? So maybe to give an example, uh, for me in the hospital, a big one was going out to the common room because I have social anxiety. So I didn't really want to spend time with other patients. And so I was telling myself kind of, you know, I'm going to do something embarrassing. Everyone will hate me, that sort of thing. So CBT is actually sort of changing that thinking to, okay, is that realistic? 
Or is it more likely that people are generally good and they want to see the good in other people? So kind of the catchphrase for CBT is change your thinking, change your life. Nice. So as you change your thinking and change your life with CBT, obviously we're just, you know, well over a year out of the, not out of the pandemic, but, you know, a year on from this event that happened to you. Yeah. How have you changed your thinking to change your life? It's been very gradual. I wouldn't say, you know, there's this remarkable shift that happens is bit by bit. And it's, you know, one day at a time, really. And recovery is not always linear. Sometimes it's one step ahead, two steps back. But a big thing for me was actually finding a purpose, like a reason, finding my why. So for me, that was writing the book and being able to connect with people on that kind of way. And it, you know, gave me a reason to get up in the morning to step outside myself and do something more for somebody else. And in healing and trying to help heal other people, I started to heal myself. Yeah. So it was one of those ones where kind of the benefits were just going round in a circle where it's like you're making yourself better by making other people feel better them feeling better makes you feel better and so on and so forth yeah exactly so around the book and around kind of what you do now where is the kind of i guess not not uh, i'm trying to think of the best way to put this actually where does the singer songwriter stuff come in with with (laughs) what you do now So that actually started a long time ago. I was 15 when we started recording my first album. So it's kind of been a part of my life for, you know, professionally, I guess, for years. And I've been kind of, well, the pandemic came right and live music kind of (laughs) died. So it was a good time to write a book. And now I don't know how things are there. Things are just kind of starting to open up here in terms of live music and things like that. So my kind of plan is to try and incorporate music and the book into, you know, these presentations and go around and not only have like a musical show, but tell my story through my writing as well so kind of combine those things into a presentation for people so are the are your songs kind of or going forward i guess you know because your more your more recent releases that will come out or you know when you do perform will they be based around the, the topic area of the book or at least inspired by it i think so yeah that's a lot of what like I haven't been writing a ton lately because the book was just so all-consuming it was so much more work than I thought it was gonna be but I'm actually getting back into writing and yeah I would kind of say it's it's the theme around I don't know redemption and recovery and and just finding your way through you know from rock bottom to coming out finding your purpose finding your why and continuing on with life and how would you advise people to find their purpose or to find their why I think it's it's challenging. You know, you t- you ask somebody who's depressed, what's your passion? And they're kind of like, well, I don't really have any. So I think it's just really putting one foot ahead of the other and knowing, giving yourself a little bit of grace to know that it might not come all at once and being open to what comes. So for me, it was, you know, that person in the hospital and, you know, 
I, I guess I was at a point where I was ready to kind of receive that message. Like if I had heard somebody tell the story or if I'd been in a different place or whatever, it may not have affected me that way. So I think to find your purpose, you just really have to be open to, you know, receiving those messages and being in a place where you can and then translating that into, you know, making a promise to yourself going forward that, yeah, this is something I'm going to do. And I'm assuming now that for you, your kind of life purpose is is going well and it's it's driving you and it's pushing you forward because you've been, you know, featured on bestseller lists for your book. You've been on lots of podcasts, you've been on television, radio, all that kind of stuff. And do you feel like if there if there was anything you could have done to change what had happened previously, you would have? Or is it like, if this hadn't happened, I wouldn't be who I am now. I don't think I would change it. I mean, it was an unfortunate situation for sure. It was one of the hardest things I've ever gone through, but I was able to kind of turn that pain into purpose. So yeah, I think it was, I don't, I don't really think there was another way around it. It was something that had to happen to be here today. And what was your biggest takeaway from that kind of period of your life where things weren't so great? I guess just the the resilience of the human spirit when we think that we can't possibly get through another day, another minute, somehow we we do. Yeah. And I guess from a a perspective of, of someone like yourself, how do you think that maybe mental health care can be given to people with disabilities in a way that makes it easier or more accessible for them because it, it can't be as simple as something as you know if someone's blind give them braille or audio only type stuff if someone's deaf have someone there with sign language is there like another way that you can help treat certain people with certain disabilities i think for me it was actually really difficult initially to reach out because i kind of felt like people would be like you know i'd go to a therapist or whatever and they'd be like oh well you're blind of course you're depressed and i mean there's so much more to it than that so i think a big one would just be really encouraging people with disabilities to feel comfortable in reaching out and i think i think we need even among our mental health professionals maybe more sensitivity training around disability Okay. And part of this sensitivity training would be kind of, I guess, just being able to feel comfortable with a disabled person in the fact that, you know, don't just assume certain things about them. Just let them tell you how things are as opposed to trying to fill in the blanks for yourself. Yeah. And to treat them as the whole instead of just, you know, this person with this with a disability. There's so many more factors that go into some why somebody might be in therapy than just, oh, they're disabled. Of course, they're depressed. Yeah. And it, go, it goes into what you've said before about striving for a normal life, even though you're anything but ordinary. Do you feel like most people and I, I know you're speaking for yourself here, but I'm, you know, asking just in general do you feel like most people kind of look at you and go oh i have to treat this person specially and you you're kind of like no just treat me like everybody else yeah there certainly are people that are like that more strangers who you kind of deal with on a day-to-day -day basis but i don't really have any friends who like if i really ask them about it they they kind of go like oh i 
I just don't even really think about it. Like you just are who you are, but it's not like we're, you know, even really having conversations about blindness or anything all the time. It's just, it, it is what it is. I am who I am. And it's not really something that even crosses their mind. So explain to me something that you would, you know, that you've in, you've done or an activity that you've done that you would enjoy doing that most people think a blind person couldn't do. Hmm. There's a lot. Uh, well, we've got well, a lot I mean, of time. So tell me about a few of them if you've got a few of them. Depends on the person because some people are like, oh, yeah, like blind people can do anything. And then there's other people on the other side of the spectrum that are like, no, you should just stay in your house and do nothing. Uh, I don't know, downhill skiing, paddle boarding, water skiing, uh, skating. I pretty much do most i <laughs> i like to drive i was Other about to ask that have you ever driven before what's yes. that like uh scary for the other people in the car but no I, i've never had a serious <laughs> crash so it's it's fun it's a good time how are you it's a lot of how are you driving I, I i'm curious what what are you doing <laughs> are you just getting it to start go, like are you driving like proper like distances no, not not too much. Usually on, you know, abandoned stretches of road for obvious reasons. And then somebody will just be in the passenger seat going right, left, forward, you know, slow down, speed up, that sort of thing. Wow. No, I, I genuinely was like thinking like, I wonder if she's driven before. And you have. <laughs> yes. So what's it like swimming then? Because I, I'm assuming that for you must feel just like fantastic. You're flowing, you're in water. You know what I mean, like there's, you'd have to worry about, I don't know if, if if something gets in your eye does it hurt I'm I'm curious yeah yeah it does some people some blind people have prosthetics so I guess it would be different for them but yeah it would feel the same for me as it would for you if you got something in your eye okay and do you go swimming like in a swimming pool all the time or is it like ocean swimming is more your type of thing more ocean swimming. I live on an island, so we're we're kind of surrounded by ocean. So we spend a lot of time there. Um, paddle boarding is like my big thing right now. So yeah, and you're, you, it sounds like you're just fairly active because it's like you said a second ago. I, I obviously I didn't assume that blind people sat inside and did nothing all day, but I was always curious like what activities can they do? And it seems like you're now just like I can do everything I want to do. Yeah, yeah, and it depends on the person, of course. We all have different personalities and interests and stuff. Some of us are going to be just naturally more active than others, the same way as, you know, a sighted person. Some sighted people are more active than others. Do you play any, like, sports or...? Uh, not really. I used to play goalball, which is kind of like... It's a Paralympic sport. It's kind of like a cross between, I don't know, indoor soccer and hockey. With a bell inside the ball, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like a a basketball almost with a bell inside of it. And were you good at that? Were you bad at that? How did that go? I wasn't really I wasn't really great at it. I was more of a arts and music kind of person growing up than than sports. Fair enough. And learning instruments. What was that like for you? Obviously, you have the option to learn things well, by ear or by braille yes did you learn most of the instruments you play now by ear yeah i did i can read a bit of braille music i'm not great at it i just kind of figured that 
you know, my hands are busy playing the instrument, so I'm going to have to memorize what I'm playing either way. So for me, I'm just more comfortable memorizing by ear anyways. So. Right. And when you're writing your music, it's all just kind of like, you're just there like, cool, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Do you use software at all or are you just kind of all analog instruments no i use software like recording software and things like that if i'm just songwriting i'll grab my phone and kind of jot down either a lyric or you know open up a the recorder on the phone and just play a bit of a melody line or whatever so yeah i do use software as well to not forget what i'm doing yeah and i guess now you're you're an author you're a musician is that kind of what you want to do all the time full-time or are you still kind of teaching uh, my partner and I have another business so I'm just really enjoying you know not having to worry too too much about the business aspect of things because things are going well on that front so I'm just really enjoying having the time and the freedom and i'm super lucky to have the flexibility to be able to record music and write books and things like that and what is that business that you and your partner own if you don't mind me asking we sell laser measurement tools to the construction industry oh wow <laughs> random well how, how did you get into that was that your choice or his choice or just something that happened it was just something that happened kind of he started working in uh, measuring granite countertops for kitchens and then somehow we moved from that to installing our own countertops and then from there to actually selling the tools to other people who install countertops so it was kind of like a progression wow so that is a definitely an odd career path you went from teaching english way back when in peru moved back to canada and you're like yeah i'm just going to start selling measurement tools for for countertops or laser measurement tools uh, yeah it's kind of been all over the place a little bit and he's a musician too so we've both worked as musicians on the side but it's always good to have something to bolster your uh your kind of music career if it's not your full-time income but it's always good to have something completely removed from it that is kind of more stable i guess yeah, yeah, the stability and then the flexibility of being able to work for ourselves to be able to pursue the music and the, the more art kind of stuff too on the side. Yeah, most definitely. And I guess, you know, things like, uh, you know, mental health and all that kind of stuff, people always want to look for the cure. They want to look for the type of thing that will make things better. Mm -hmm. But you're saying it's an ongoing journey. It's a daily journey. How do yeah. you kind of deal with it day to day what do you do that helps with depression the biggest thing for me is to find one thing at least one thing a day that will help somebody else and I think a big part of depression comes from not feeling useful so when you're doing something good for somebody else then you're you're feeling useful you're feeling like yeah I have you know I'm leaving this world a little better than I found it yeah and for you, it's it's one of those things where you're like, okay, cool. I'm helping this person. They're helping me, et cetera, et cetera. Do you kind of actively try to reach out to people that are struggling with mental health or do you kind of 
just let people come to you? I more let people come to me. I think I, well, it depends. Like if it's somebody I know or I'll, you know, I'm in a couple mental health Facebook groups and things like that. So I will reach out in those sorts of ways, but I just really try to encourage people to reach out to me if they need to. And I think just the biggest thing is, you know, reach out to people, you know, it doesn't even have to be mental health, but just, you know, ask them, you know, how are you doing and really listen to the answer. And if you're concerned about something, somebody, I think it's important to raise that with them. Yeah. So it's it's more about lending an ear to somebody and just, you know, being there for them more so than it is being like, oh, you should get some professional help type thing all the time. Yeah, I think so. I think it's important to be a friend and not a therapist. There are definitely times where I think it's important to encourage somebody to get um, professional help and to maybe help them to do that because the nature of some mental illnesses makes it really hard to actually reach out for professional help because, you know, how do you keep reaching out over and over and over again when you don't feel like you're worthy of help? So I think if you know, in my case, I'm happy to try and help people make those connections, those professional connections, because I've been there, I've seen and experienced how the mental health care system works. Yeah. And do you have any advice for people that are trying to find a therapist? Like, because I'm assuming when you're looking for a therapist, it's not always about, oh, yes, this is the one that they've, you know, given me. Is there a kind of criteria you should look out for for a therapist that's good for you or a good fit for you? Yeah, it's challenging for sure. It's like finding a partner almost. <laughs> like I've been to a lot of therapists and some of them have been great and some of them haven't been. And some of them would be great for other people, but they just didn't really, we didn't mesh. So I think it's important. I mean, they should be qualified for sure, but I think even more importantly than, you know, do they have this or that qualification is, do you mesh with them? Do you feel like you're being heard by them? Do you feel like they're reacting with compassion and giving you tools to be able to help yourself? Yeah, most definitely. And where you are kind of, you know, on let's say the the kind of other side of, of this, this struggle, you're on a more of an upwards trajectory. Would you say that, you know, you're gonna have a therapist for life or you're gonna have a therapist for the next few months? I think I probably will require mental health support for the rest of my life intermittently. I don't think, you know, when I got out of the hospital, it was like constant outpatient um, treatment programs and stuff like that, which is tapered off now for sure. But I don't, I'm not under any illusions that I will, you know, just be better and never need therapy again. Yeah. And, if you don't mind me asking, what is a typical therapy session like for you, for people that have never done it before? What do they ask? And, you know, how did, how does it end up feeling? Is it good? Is it bad? It, I mean, I think if you leave a therapy session with a therapist and you constantly feel negative when you leave, it's probably not a good fit. I usually feel, you know, you, you can feel kind of tired but I think usually I leave feeling empowered and feeling like I have some more tools. And a lot of it just is affirmation, having that 
non-biased person who you can talk to because you know family and friends they bring their own preconceived notions into any advice that they might give to you so this is just somebody really neutral who you can talk to who doesn't know the other players in your story so they they can maybe give you a little bit more um I don't know generalized advice that's not coming from a place of of you know preconceived notions yeah that that does make sense and so looking back at your life and looking forward at your life now if you had any advice that you could give to your younger self what would that look like what would it be I think I would tell my younger self that I wouldn't say things will get better cheer up tomorrow's another day because I think those are really empty platitudes when you're actually going through it and I remember people would say those things to me and that would be about the point that I would stop listening to them but I think I would tell her that there will come a day, I can promise that there will come a day where she will feel so much joy and she'll stop in that moment and she'll think, I would have missed this. And she just needs to hang on for that day to come. Okay. And are you still hanging on for that day to come or is that day come and, and it's still, you know, let's, let's say that a day is not just what we define as a day, but a day is a period of your life. Yeah, I think it's a thousand little moments. You know, it's not this one, okay, I'm better now because I've had this one experience. It's, you know, it happens to me so many, so many places, hanging out with friends, going for a, a dinner or whatever, paddle boarding, um, writing music, and I'll just kind of stop and go, you know, I would have, I would have denied myself this. Yeah. As it's all about you just living literally as best you can living for the kind of I guess the best living as the best version of yourself yeah yeah and being in that moment not always being so concerned about the future but just feeling that joy of the moment yeah so I mean I'm still kind of intrigued I feel like every every kind of moment that passes I have a new thought that I want to ask you about of you know what it's like being blind how do you use social media like do you use instagram do you use twitter or anything like that oh yeah yeah i use instagram facebook twitter so it's just the same screen reading software that i was talking about earlier some of it can be a little bit challenging because um well instagram in particular i guess is pretty heavily image based yeah but there's artificial intelligence now that actually will do its best to describe what's in the photo on Facebook and Instagram. Can so, you give us an example of that if that's possible like what it sounds like or what it says? Yeah so I mean it's, it's not always perfect it does get things wrong but it might say something like you know 30 year old woman with brown hair on a beach looking happy <laughs> something like that. And you're just kind of like, okay, nice. I mean, yeah, it's better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah, but between that and, and the the caption of the image, you can usually kind of get the gist of it. How do you memorize moments now? Because a lot of people will take pictures, obviously, and videos for Instagram or for any social media and upload them. So 
what is your way of like I guess storing memories do you take pictures as well or do you kind of do like voice recordings yeah I take a lot of pictures videos are good because you know if I'm going to post them to social media then the sighted people get their images and and I still get my audio to remember it by so it's kind of the best of both worlds yeah okay so video is kind of where you you live at rather than kind of being like oh I guess I'll just you know what I mean I'll just uh I'll just miss out on things yeah no video for sure because then I have that audio aspect like oh yeah that's how that happened instead <laughs> of looking at a picture do you have a lot of uh audio based kind of ways of entertainment like do you listen to a lot of podcasts or anything like that I listen to a lot of audiobooks so when I'm doing housework or whatever mm. just I don't know I feel like I always have an audiobook on in the background any kind of specific genre that you like to listen to or anything like that anything I like a lot of psychological thrillers I guess okay why mm -hmm. I don't know it's just well I've always been interested in psychology I guess and then you get that little bit of like deviant behavior kind of thing with the, <laughs> the psychopaths and stuff in the book so it's really interesting I guess from a psychological perspective or you know trying to figure out who did what before the end of the book oh right okay so it's kind of like the the mystery is what keeps you going in the books yeah yeah it's like okay can I figure this out or is this gonna totally shock me when it comes to the end wow and I guess my kind of like final like closing question is do you have any kind of principles or mottos that you live your life by one day at a time i i think it's cliche but i think it's cliche because it's true i think we can get bogged down so much in the the fears of the future or the pain of the past and we forget to live for the now here's where to find heather online so you can check out my new book holding on by letting go that just came out it's available on Amazon, Audible, pretty much anywhere you buy your books. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook at Heather Hutchison Music, Instagram, Heather Hutchison Music, Twitter, HL Hutchison. Or you can check out my website, which has information on my book and my music at www.heather-hutchison.com. H-U-T-C-H-I-S-O-N. Thank you for listening to People Explained. New episodes come out every Monday. We would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend.